Welcome to the Podvocates. You have the whole Podvocate team here today, and we're going to be talking about, you know, the implications of sex and gender and the law. I think probably a pretty expansive uh, conversation on that. Um, we know y'all just heard myself, Olivia Ashe, interview with Kara Dansky. And so this is kind of in response to that, as well as our understanding and thoughts about that episode. So let's get into it. First, we're going to have all the members just talk about, define how they understand sex and gender. And, you know, y'all, that can be as broad or as narrow as you want to get into it. Um, but I thought that would be a good place to start. And I'd love to invite Emmett uh, to kick us off. Thank you, Olivia. I see the two as separate, but nevertheless interrelated, dealing with identity and characteristics. So typically, I would see gender as a person's inward identity and sex as something more outward. Um, and I also think both are social constructs that are definitely not absolute or perfect by any means. So like most constructs, I'd say they exist on somewhat of a spectrum that just really there is a lot of uncertainty there. Leanne, how about you? I take sex and gender from kind of a biological perspective um, as informed by like my undergrad, but I biology makes things so messy and everything in life is just messy and complicated. And there's just as with the law, there's exceptions to every rule. There's um, there's really very few absolute truths and absolutes at all, especially um, given the sciences. And so I view kind of sex and gender as an extension of kind of the messiness of life and its possibilities. So um, I agree with Emmett that a lot of gender is inward identity, but also how you choose to express that identity to people you know, to people you don't know, and in part how people perceive you. Because at the end of the day, there's the you that you project and the you that other folks see you as, and they're related, but they're not exact. Yeah, when I think about this question, this is Olivia speaking, I can't help but to think about Kentaji Brown Jackson when she was asked um, in her Supreme Court nomination, what is a woman? And she's like, I'm not a biologist. And there were all sorts of opinions about like how she should have answered, what she should have said, what biology says or doesn't say. Um, for myself, when I think about sex, biology definitely does come to mind and, you know, a myriad of topics, anatomy, hormones, reproductive organs, systems, brains, genes, male, female, intersex, all those things come to mind when I think about sex. Uh, when I think about gender, I largely think about like the socialization is key for me when I think about gender. And I guess what I mean by that is how society prescribes certain roles and behaviors on us, how we play into those roles or how we don't play into those roles for the most part. I do think of them as separate. What about you, Lenny? So I sort of agree with um, the thought that sex is definitely tied to biology. I understand what Leanne's saying as far as how biology can be messy. But at the same point, that's the starting point. That's the thing that people have to go off from um, looking at either the sex organs or the, the genetic makeup of somebody um, in determining sex. Now, Gender, I agree that, you know, that's sort of how you express yourself to society. Um, but at the same point, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that being sort of a spectrum at the same time. And I think that's something that has to be explored because, you know, some people might 
like appearing a specific way, but that doesn't at all impact their gender. So I think that's something that has to be taken into consideration when we sort of discuss um, either gender as a spectrum or gender as sort of a black and white or somewhere in between. Lenny, could you just introduce the seventh podvocate member that we have with us? We heard something. I don't want people to think you're like farting on the air or something like that. No, so if people hear someone in the background, that's my daughter, Augustine. She's decided that Coco Melon wasn't interesting enough for her. So she wants to engage in a legal discussion at nine months old. Beautiful. Christy, what comes to mind when you think about sex and gender? So, yeah, kind of to echo what everyone's been saying. I also view sex as something that's determined by biology's influence on a person's characteristics. Whereas gender, I see more as society's influence on those characteristics. I also view gender as something that's not as definitive as one's sex, in the sense that I think in the ways that we evolve individually and as a society also affects the way that people choose to express their gender. How about you, Marissa? Um, you know, I think these are really complicated questions, and obviously everybody's um alluded to that in their answers, but I definitely think of sex as more of a biological conversation and gender as more of a personal representation conversation. I remember being an undergrad and first hearing gender as a social construct and being really confused as to what people were talking about. And I remember doing a bit of digging at that point and realizing that it's actually fairly new and fairly limited to our society to view these as binaries. And per Leanne's point, you know, the biology is not cut and dry. It's not clean. And so the idea that we have to fit into these binaries, I find highly problematic, whether we're talking about sex on the biological side or whether we're talking about gender on the personal representation side. Um, so while I do view them as, as somewhat separate, I also recognize that trying to shoehorn them into any sort of binary is going to be highly problematic and non-representative of the way that people's representations of themselves manifest. But also if you were to, you know, do a biological test on somebody and look at their chromosomes, you know, like it's not necessarily going to be that cut and dry. I love all of this. I think this segues perfectly into, you know, the basis of why this matters for law. Like words, definitions are never perfect. Um, I think we try to perfect them in, in some ways, like we try to give a better word for something, et cetera. But that's kind of the foundation of what we're talking about, right? Like we have these concepts, gender, sex, everyone kind of gave their understanding of them. Um, a lot of us said that it was messy or fluid or a spectrum. So what does that mean for the law? I don't know. What do folks think about that? How do we fit these concepts into the law that aren't static, but right when we write the law, it is something static on a piece of paper, more or less. I think we start with representation, right? Like I think part of the problem with a lot of the way that law is written is that it's written for somebody on like about somebody else or for a class about another class, law does involve othering, right? Like by virtue of what law is and in order to have protected classes, we have to separate them by definition. And I think to start to do inclusive, meaningful, protective law, we actually need to ask the people 
that would be a part of a class as to how they're thinking about it and how they want to be represented. And I think that the more these folks are left out of the conversation in any class, are left out of the conversation and out of seats of power when it comes to writing law, the less effective and protective the law is going to be. And so while I don't have an answer, and I know that that my response probably opens the door to a million more questions, I just think to even start to have the conversation, you can't have like a cis, hetero, white, Christian, female talking about how transgender folks should be represented or if they exist, like who, who has the right to say what somebody else experiences other than that individual? To jump in um, a little bit on the concept of kind of biological categories and legal categories, I think at least for this aspect of the discussion, it's helpful to analogize a little to, to race because race itself you know, we divide up in the law as um, a certain set of biological and physical characteristics. But we, um, as anybody who's tried to fill out a form that delineates their race, it's a little bit more difficult because some forms say African-American and some forms say Black. Not all Black people are, you know, African-American. And so these types of categories are very fluid. The types of folks who are like geographically distinct, but also physically similar in characteristics. Are you European? You know, is that a race? You know, is Asian a race? Is any of this kind of a race? These are all also, to some degree, social and biological categories. But the types of biology associated with those categories are are difficult. There's that, I think it was a relatively controversial tweet that was circulating that called Elon Musk African-American because he is South African. And immediately, you know, the reaction is, well, I guess, what is that about? And I'm not Black and I'm not African-American and I'm not going to speak further on that issue, but it sort of lampshades the difficulty of the entire um, sociological, biological experience. And I think Marissa's highlighting this as a conversation is so important because at the end of the day, it is just an ongoing conversation that we have with folks in our community, with folks writ large, and that helps to deepen our understanding of our fellow humans. That's, uh, I think, where we have to always start in terms of determining how this is applied in the law. Um, Because I think the difficulty, and we may talk about this a bit later, of providing definitions is that with biological categories, it inevitably stops just short of being very good. And as law students, we all know that definitions are the most cumbersome aspect of the law, and they are also central to the practice of law. For example, Kara talks in your interview about the um, XX and XY chromosomes being in part determinative of biological characteristics, and she is correct in that. Um, It's just that possessing two X chromosomes and one Y chromosome can also give you male characteristics, and possessing one X chromosome and no secondary sex chromosome can have you present with female characteristics and any kind of spectrum in between. So while gender we kind of understand to be 
a spectrum of modes of progression, sex characteristics themselves are also along that line. And I think efforts to root them in biological reality end up with messier and more complicated categories than might originally be envisioned. So I'm going to push back a little bit on the assertion that biology can be messy. Um, And that's based on the fact that, you know, as you know, in law, there's all sorts of public policy aspects of the way that things are constructed. And definitions are huge, just like you mentioned. So there's generalizations that are made, right, as far as XX or XY. But what about that term intersex? How does that play into the way that that you sort of analyze that aspect? Intersex kind of is, and I don't understand um, that as well as I would like to for the purposes of this discussion, but intersex uh, encompasses a wide variety of um, biological and genetic makeups that result in someone not necessarily fitting into common constructs of what we would envision like biological man or biological woman. Sometimes it's presentation of multiple sex characteristics. Sometimes it involves um, increased or decreased uh, hormone levels or the absence of production of hormones. Some of them result in different unique presentations of um, either sex organs or again, secondary sex characteristics that develop after puberty. And while these folks don't represent a huge portion of the population, it's important to consider that definitions that are rooted in biology have to be non-exclusionary in that sense. You know, um, how, if we're rooting um, our identity in biology, do we take into account folks who have more complicated relationships with their own body? Yeah, I mean, I think off top, we probably definitely can. I think it definitely is a fault that we don't talk about the realities of intersex. And, you know, it it seems like it's been coming up more, especially in the sports conversation and the Olympics. I remember uh, there was a track athlete who had a different hormonal things going on. And there are all these tests. And is she a woman? Is she not a woman? And yeah, I also don't understand entirely the whole, all the science behind intersex. My assumption, and this could be totally wrong, is that there's female and male intersex conditions. And that could be entirely wrong. And I don't want to spend too much time on the science that we don't entirely understand or um, may not be able to give, uh, you know, a proper representation of. But I did want to jump back to the Elon Musk South African thing and, and that kind of being an analogy, because I think one reason that it's such a big deal is Elon Musk African-American is because we know that he's not. African-American is not, in my opinion, just about do you have an African parent and do you have an American parent, right? It's rooted in a particular set of experiences that go beyond ethnicity conversation or the details of that. So that's just something that I wanted to bring in in response to that particular piece. And I guess how that relates maybe to this conversation with the gender and sex is that in all of this, well, particularly with sex, I guess, I feel like there are there are boundaries. Like, you know, for African-American community, there are boundaries for what what allows you to be included in that. 
and what doesn't. Like if Elon Musk was to submit an application and someone were to grant him uh, affirmative action on, you know, school or something like that because he's African-American, I would see that as wrong. I would see that as an incorrect application of that based on the definitions and understandings of what it means to be African-American. And I think that might be generally accepted. Um, but all that to say is that I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have boundaries or to say, for these purposes, this is how we're understanding this particular thing. So I think that sort of brings up sort of that, or the Judge Jackson, um, Justice Jackson now, the question that was in her hearing. And so Olivia, I would ask you, what defines African-American then? Yeah, I think a myriad of things, culture, the history of enslavement, the being brought from the continent of Africa to the United States, laughter, food, dance, particular experiences that you have in the United States, um, a myriad of things, I think, is a soft definition of what's African-American, right? It's, it's not a monolith, of course, but there are people who are not African-American, even if they grew up in Africa and they have an American parent. And that's interesting because I've sort of had those conversations with people that have recently immigrated from Africa and they feel that disconnect with current Americans, current African Americans. Um, so, but with that in mind, then that's sort of how I see the conversation, you know, the question of what is a woman, because it has different meanings depending on your perspectives. So I was wondering for the folks here, are we comfortable trying to define what a woman is for the purposes of our roundtable? Is that something we can do? I think like a lot of these are really complex because there's such societally defined elements, right? Like they're all about how society experiences you and how your experience, how you experience society. I remember a friend of mine who moved to the mainland from Hawaii, who's a white Christian cis woman who being white on Hawaii was a really awful experience for her growing up. And then when she got to the United, like to the mainland of the U.S., she had a really, really hard time experiencing like whiteness as privilege, given the, her experience growing up. And I think this kind of definition or attempt to define these things become so conflicted because most of the time what we're trying to define is a societal disadvantage, right? Especially in law, like how do you fit into a class that is experiencing some sort of like oppressive or disadvantaged status within our society and with our societal constructs? And so, you know, in that sense, I think it really is a lot more about outward presentation of somebody than it is about someone's genitalia. Like, I don't care what genitalia anybody has, right? Like I'm not looking at, and I would say the average human is not looking at somebody that, you know, potentially presents as a woman um, or feminine and being like, oh, like, does that person actually have what we define as like female genitalia? Like, I don't care. And the fact that this centers so much on the idea of like what are what are what people gen, what people's genitalia are is so bizarre to me um because first of all like it's none of your business <laughs> and second of all like it's really about how these individuals experience society and how society experiences them 
And what we're trying to protect against is being at a disadvantage systematically because of how society perceives you, right? And so when it comes to, you know, a long way around to come back to the, can we define woman? Like the definition of woman is a growing thing, right? Like there are women who move through the world wearing pants and blazers and have short hair and wear what's typically considered male clothing, but would emphatically define themselves as being a woman. And then there are women that, you know, like wear high heels and whatever, like, you know, norm of thinking about a way people present themselves as, and like they emphatically define themselves as women. So shouldn't we attempt to be as inclusive as possible in our definition rather than exclusionary? Like we don't need to be in a, in a mindset where we think that there's like not enough protection to go around, right? Like we can be an inclusive tent of making sure that people feel protected in our society and whatever the most expansive definition can be, I think it should be. I think we should be inclusive. Yeah, I kind of want to push back on that a little bit just to keep the conversation going and because I'm curious, but one thing with um, Kara was, her conversation that there are times when it does matter in the law or when, um, like, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but when genitalia does matter, right? Like when that is an important distinction to be made for a particular purpose. And I guess one example that I want to bring up that I feel like doesn't get, or is actually maybe getting more attention uh, lately, at least, uh, maybe if you're looking for it, you, you'll, you'll find it. If you're not, you won't. But the, the situation of prisons and domestic violence shelters, those scenarios for me are situations where genitalia matters. Even if a woman is stronger, even if a cis woman is stronger than a trans woman in that particular scenario, For me, there's not only the potential sexual assault genitalially, (laughs) I don't know how to say that, it's different, but I think what I'm trying to say is, but what about when genitalia does matter or does it ever matter? Maybe it doesn't, that's that's what I wanna propose. Just to quickly respond, because I think maybe I didn't represent that aspect. And I know Olivia, I think you and I had actually chatted about this at one point, but like society, currently seems to be making a big stink about something that is like a very small percentage of the population. And in very rare cases, like why can't we treat these cases as individual cases in which we actually like assess the situation that we're facing and not need to actually like fully define what that person is, but like what that person's needs are and what the people that will be in that situation's needs are to ensure safety. I know Kara talked about this in the interview, like the assault in a prison or or something. And it was like, that doesn't happen all the time. And I'm not saying that one time is okay. It's not right. Like one time is more than awful. Like it should never happen, but we need to treat these as individual cases because they're all so different. And I think it's actually okay to start to try to tailor our treatment of these towards unique circumstances that are being experienced. I would also jump in to talk about kind of the idea of genitalia in terms of sexual assault and a societal construct 
define sexual assault as penetrative activity and as exclusively like male on female violence or portrays it as such, in fact, disadvantages non-penetrative sexual assault and rape and also disadvantages male victims from coming forward. And it's not necessarily that we have to always sit here and say like, but what about men? But it is a situation where this portrayal of sexual assault and this construct of it has unintended negative consequences for those who experience sexual assault in a way that is not clearly um, portrayed in the law and in, um, in our like criminal codes. To that end though, like, there's a reason that there are, and I'm gonna use broad terms, men's and women's prisons. Like there's a reason that those were established in that way. It's for a myriad of reasons, but one thing being safety, two things there are specifically women's issues that are better dealt with if they're in their own environment, just like there's issues pertaining to men that are better handled in their own environment. And so I sort of agree with the idea that this should be handled on an individual basis and sort of not, don't paint with broad brushstrokes. But again, unfortunately, when we have this public policy type, I forget which Supreme Court decision said, it, but basically like public policy can have such, you know, tremendous weight when trying to create new policies. The question that I have then is, if we try to respect you know, someone's gender identity in these situations. And this is going to be tricky. How do you either validate or verify that expression? If it's something that you know, people would argue that it can be so subtle as far as either expression or what have you, how do you say in a specific situation, yes or no? I mean, first and foremost, prison abolition. But second of all, that's a topic for a different day. But also, I mean, this kind of functions on the premise that prisons are safe. There are probably, and I don't have numbers, so this is totally me just spitballing, but like my guess would be that there are way more sexual assaults that happen amongst cisgendered males in prisons than we see transgender sexual violence in a prison, right? So like, Shouldn't we be addressing the violence issue in and of itself? And maybe this will remedy itself. And then we can treat people the way that they want to be seen. I just feel like we there needs to be an element of this that is a good faith discussion about folks. And I'm not saying that anybody here is not acting in good faith or speaking in good faith. I just think that when we talk about these identities, like we should approach it as if we just believe people. And work to remedy maybe the underlying issues that come along with violence in prison systems first, before we get all up in arms about defining gender to reduce the potential for violence in prisons. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, it's a circular argument, but Olivia? Yeah. I also am down for prison abolition and I'm also down for harm reduction, right? Like the fact is, there is violence in prison and that is something we can address. But if there is one, you know, there's many concrete things we can do to decrease violence that happens in prisons. If this is one of them, right, this is not the only one, this just happens to be the topic that we're talking about today, gender and sex and prisons in a relation with that. Why would we not do it 
when we know historically that one reason that male and female prisons were separated were for safety reasons. I think that in light of harm reduction principles that we really consider the separation of male and female prisons and the boundaries we draw around that as something that's important. But I, yeah, I do want to uh, also, if other folks have other responses to this, yes, please give them. And then also, I am curious about, there are people who are going to take advantage of the system, right? Who are going to say, yes, I have a female gender identity and are not going to be sincere. And I'm still curious to hear too, like, what, what do we mean by female gender identity? That is not in a way that's also regressive, such that it's reinforcing sex-based stereotypes, right? Like, how do we know that person is sincere? Can we know that person is sincere? Do we have what? (laughs) Definitely don't suggest having trans prisons if you're a prison abolitionist, right? Because then that's more prisons. But, you know, how are we gonna, how are we gonna address this and, and have this harm reduction come in? Um, Lenny also touched on that uh, issue of sincerity. I, I think the concept of sincerity, um, especially in the context of like rights and privileges granted to folks, is present across like all aspects of the law. It's um, it's especially um, present in terms of lack of visibility in a religious context, because the only thing that separates a religious person from a non-religious person is a sincerely held belief. I mean, and sometimes that can translate in the way that you um, present yourself to the world and matters of clothing, et cetera. But a lot of the times, like we, we are as a society capable of recognizing sincerely held beliefs that don't necessarily translate to a physical appearance or a physical anything. You can't look inside someone's heart and know that they're Catholic or that they're Jewish or no. You, you just, there is an element of trust that exists and we do offer societal benefits um, and protections to folks who are religious and who are persecuted on the base of their religious identity. And on some level, it has to be related to trust because you can never look into somebody's heart and mind and know that um, they are definitely transgender and not lying, just as you cannot look into somebody who is the victim of religious persecution and know that they're sincerely um, a religion and that they're not just pretending to be religious for the purposes of um, this, that, and the other thing. For a lot of the times, this comes up in disability law um, on an event that I discussed, that a lot of disabilities are invisible disabilities. And there was a paper that arose that talks about our pervasive cultural trope that there are people who are faking disability in order to receive disability benefits. And the overwhelming um, data show that that doesn't happen, that people don't do this. People don't fake disabilities and um, especially invisible ones um, in order to receive some kind of unearned benefit. And my um, what I keep coming back to in terms of the context of unearned benefits um, and faking to get benefits is what do we all give up with the fear that other people may receive something for free? What harms are perpetuated because of the worry that people are cheating? You know, we, we see this a lot of the times with social benefits. And that's my concern on the other side of it is we need to make sure that in the process of mitigating and preventing harm, we are not perpetuating additional harm against individuals. And that goes back to even the conversation from 
I don't know, 10 years ago when people were all freaking out about, you know, the bathroom bills and all that too. Like that was the big scare tactic used back then is that, you know, there's going to be, you know, there was this image of a man walking into a woman's bathroom, blah, blah, blah. So I definitely, I definitely think that that's something that's, that is a valid point, but unfortunately, like, again, given the fact that this is a prison system, I mean, I understand the folks that do have some sort of doubt as to the integrity of the people that are going into these systems. I guess, so to throw a wrench into this, another wrench into this definitions issue, like per the, you can never know what's going on in someone's mind. Like I'm Jewish, but I am not a practicing Jew but I experience a lot of disadvantage in society for living in a predominantly Christian society. I don't celebrate Christmas or Easter. I've never celebrated Christmas or Easter yet. Every business that I want to go to or things I want to do on those holidays, it's closed. If I am to observe a holiday, even as a cultural event with my family or something like I don't have off, I have to take my personal time to take off on a holiday, but I'm atheist. And simultaneously, you could test my blood and say, without a semblance of a doubt, that I am an Eastern European Jew. So I think definitions, again, I I think taking a good faith belief in the fact that what people are defining themselves as is what they are and treating the people that are the outliers in that as the bad cases. And I mean, this happens in sexual assault and rape cases, right? Like there's this whole trope that women lie about being raped. And it's like, no, they don't. Like the the actual data shows that like by far and in large, that is not a common thing that people lie about. So again, like there needs to be a semblance of faith in people's self-definition and treating the people that are bad faith actors as unique cases rather than making that the rule. And focusing on harm reduction in prisons in in the violence context, I'm not going to speak too much on this topic just because I don't focus in criminal law, but in the context of harm reduction, my understanding is that um, there are separate areas of prisons for folks who are especially vulnerable to um, violence against them. And that they use this in prisons as a structure, they use this to prevent harm to the um, inhabitants of the prison. I don't know why in part that could not be uh, employed in order to protect individuals um, in a gender-based violence context. In part because Trans men and trans women also are the subjects of violence and the subjects of like gender-based violence from another perspective. Looking at the news, there was an article of an older woman who um, was on hormone replacement therapy uh, because she had a hysterectomy, which is very common for women who have had hysterectomies. And they saw that when they were classifying her for prison, that she um, was on hormone replacement therapy and assumed that she was transgender and sent her to a men's prison where she experienced verbal and emotional abuse during the time that she was there. Now, this is a cisgender woman, but if a transgender woman was sent to a men's prison, it is possible that that person would also like receive abuse and hate and require protection in that context. So in a way, gender violence is not necessarily just something cisgender and transgender women 
like experience and cisgender and transgender men experience, it is something that is inextricably linked like between us as people um, because of our statuses and the way that other people perceive us. This gender is something that we all participate in <laughs> to some degree. Yeah, I think this conversation is kind of going back to a point Olivia brought up about just women's sports in general and trans participation. And I'd like to go back to that for a minute. I see it kind of as like a sub issue and ultimately somewhat of like a wedge issue for people who definitely agree with trans rights. I think in sports separated by men's and women's leagues, it seems to be like there's a school of thought that either you see the reason for the male female split as for participation's sake, or you see it for competition's sake. So like take the example of Leah Thomas, who's been in the news. She's a swimmer for Penn. Uh, who transitioned from male to female late in life. Analyzing her right to participate in a women's league, someone who would care more about the participation element of sports, but more about like identity, they would have no issue with that. And I, I think vice versa, someone who cares more about the competitive aspect of women's sports, those people would have an issue, obviously. So it seems to me that it's somewhat of a wedge issue in trans rights. Um, speak or like a liberal who wholly accepts the social and political rights of trans people might still protest. But at the same time, you have Leah Thomas, who is a woman and shouldn't have to participate in the league that she doesn't really identify with. And I, I don't really see an answer to this question. Maybe it involves reclassifying men's and women's sports into something more technical. Does anybody else have a, a thought on that? So one thing that I wanted to touch about things you brought it up um, is like, here's my real issue with the whole topic. And it's going to sort of be a little bit off topic, but the media. So sports, it's, you know, by and large, it's people more on the conservative end of the spectrum care more about sports than people on the more liberal side of the spectrum. That's just statistics show that's just the trend of sports. But it was it's interesting to see how once the trans movement entered the sports arena that's when you get the conservative talking heads really starting to fuel this conversation again and it's like we talked about earlier it's not a huge population of people that are impacted the trans community doesn't take up a huge percentage of our population right but it's blown out of proportion it's sensationalized by these media outlets because now it's in the sports world and that's where my big issue with the topic comes in is that it's just used just like you know a lot of the other social issues that have popped up the last couple of years the media has such an incredible role in driving the discourse and driving the the wet like you mentioned the wedge in between the two sides of the perspective when really i'm sure both sides would agree that more freedom is good but yet here we are saying that this is causing you know the collapse of our society um, I think uh, the, one of the most interesting aspects of the transgender um, sports conversation is that it's only ever about trans women in um, cis women's sports, and it's never about trans men in men's sports, because, again, the assumption broadly by the media and by folks who are concerned about this issue, either for um, culture war reasons or genuine concern about these issues, is that women are bad at sports and that um, there is no biological advantage for a trans man in a men's sport. It's almost at, notably absent 
from the discussion in, in like a very stark way once you start to kind of consider the experiences of trans men. To understand sports is to kind of understand that there are biological advantages that have nothing to do with sex. There are biological advantages that just have to do with metabolism, development, height, weight, etc. that also create serious disparities in sports. If you are efficient at metabolizing lactic acid and it doesn't build up in your muscles, you are able to have more endurance. And that is just the way it is in your body. Um, that is what kind of at some point at the elite level or even at the higher performance level, you start these biological disparities start to expose themselves. For example, if we were to have sports kind of separated by biological sex, if trans men were to compete in cisgender like women sports and they were taking testosterone as hormone therapy, that's something that is considered doping in sports is taking testosterone. But this is you know, in part essential to the way that they want to express their identity long-term. So it becomes an issue of men in women's sports and women in men's sports across the board. Like are these, um, are these, are trans men no longer allowed to participate in women's sports despite biologically being classified as such because how they're choosing to participate is to also do what for non-trans people is doping. So it's, it's not an easy question. And I think that a lot of long-term conversations about it are, are really all over the place in terms of like the biology and the hormone argument. And it's not a cut and dry issue by any means. Um, but I think in, it's important to take into account like what results from this, you know, like if we're cutting one way and we're um, saying that uh, trans women need to be separated by sex, we also need to separate trans men by sex, which would for example, if we were looking um, at any kind of thing, would result in trans men being in women's sports and in women's prisons and in women's uh, domestic violence shelters, which is an unintended but natural consequence of the same logic that we apply to transgender women. Yeah, sports is one of my least favorite topics around this overall. And I say that as an athlete, like I was a college athlete, I've done sports my whole life, sports have been really important to my development, my life, et cetera. One reason it's my least favorite is because it it is complicated, right? Like I am um, a black cisgender woman um, and I have an incredible capacity to build muscle development. And so that means like as a kid, like people called me a man as a teenager, you know, it was it was always really complicated and yada, yada, yada. Um, but I did sports because that was the one place, right, that I felt like I could defy gender roles without any question like I could be as aggressive as I wanted to I could deadlift 500 pounds you know all these kinds of things right but sports are complicated because we have a variations of hormones experiences all those things that add up to like what makes a productive athlete so I think honestly we could probably get rid of sports we could put less pressure on professional sports we could get rid of the Olympics as because it's really just no imperial imperialist agenda blah 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 etc I could go on forever about that but um, I do want to push back a little bit on the sports trans men thing, because while well, there is definitely for sure this like trans men are just silly, weak women, you know, whatever, they're confused, they're not really men. I think there is a real safety aspect too, right? Like one of the reasons that the um, cisgender woman who was put into the prison didn't feel safe is because 
it wasn't safe. It's not often safe for women to be put in those circumstances many of the time. One other point in terms of the biology piece, I think everyone's kind of at fault missing the fact there are some biological differences that do matter for sports on top of the whole you know, experiences, ability to metabolize, et cetera. Like I learned the other day that the way a female's rotator cuff is positioned on their body changes the way they can throw and in comparison to a male body. So like those things do exist and do matter, right? There are, of course, a ton of other attributes. But at the core of all of this for me is patriarchy. At the bottom of this whole conversation of how we can present ourselves, where we feel most comfortable, why we don't feel comfortable in those particular places is because patriarchy has created these roles that put us in these narrow boxes. So in talking about, you mentioned like the biological differences. Um, What I equate this to is, um, so when I was getting ready to leave active duty in the army, they were in the process of redoing the physical fitness test because they wanted to create a test that was gender and age neutral. Uh, One of the complaints that folks had about the old system was that the standards for, again, broad terms, for women soldiers was dynamically lower than that of men. So for example, push-ups, for example, I don't remember the exact number, but men had a certain threshold of push-ups, which you had to do a certain run time you had to do um, in order to maintain readiness and women's, the standard was much, much lower. And so they went through this multi-million, multi-year process to develop this gender neutral or sex neutral, gender neutral, age neutral, test. And they implemented it over the course of a couple of years. Of course, COVID impacted a lot of it. But at the end of the day, even with the neutral standards, women could not perform to the same level as their male counterparts. They were failing at a much higher rate than male soldiers. And so just here recently, and it was to the extent where it was significant, like the the statistics were significant in the fact that there was this disparity. And then at the end of the day, just recently, I think last month, they published a new physical fitness standard. And again, it is based on sex. So there is a lot to say about, you know, the performance of men and women. And this isn't, you know, talking about the whole transgender issue in the military that's its own animal on its own but it does highlight at least in one specific aspect of you know the legal field because you know physical fitness tests can have an effect on your promotions jobs everything in the military lots based on that aspect of it so it does impact it and so that's something that it was interesting to see how this monolith of a federal entity did so much to try to make it equitable, but at the end of the day, they had to go back to more of a sex-based standard. Yeah. And I don't mean to um, like diminish like the, the sex-based differences um, between men and women, because like there are certain aspects that are different. Um, Duke University has done a lot of research in this area, uh, particularly in the context of sports and consistently found that um, very high-performing women in sports fall to either equivalent or lower categories than 
boys who participate in sports. Um, there, there are fundamental differences here that are related to biological characteristics that create that kind of gender divide and sex divide that Lenny was discussing just now. Um, what I mean to shine a light on mostly is that at the end of the day, uh, um, looking at sports and looking at kind of classification in the law and society is that regardless of what happens, like trans men and trans women and intersex individuals experience a kind of homelessness in this dichotomy. So, you know, <clears throat> they are not at home in certain types of sporting characters. They're not at home in certain types of classifications. They're not at home in a lot of this binary that like we have constructed. And since trans people exist, it is something that we are going to have to work to include to some degree and accommodate through understanding also on a case-by-case -case basis. I think sports is an area where case-by-case -case basis is a little bit easier to assess um, because everybody has to try out for sports teams. That's just the way that it works. Um, I forget which football team had a, um, a female kicker on um, their rest of their football team was male. I think that was Vanderbilt, although I could be incorrect. Um, but that is where it's easy to apply structurally the case-by-case -case basis that Marissa evaluated earlier when she, in her comments. But I think it's important regardless of like, and to step back a bit, to understand that some folks experience this type of societal homelessness and this lack of community and this lack of feeling recognized, respected and involved, that is important. And to go back to kind of a central theme that is spread throughout the idea of um, women's spaces, a lot of the times there is self-selection in this respect. If there are women's spaces dedicated to pregnancy, folks who do not get pregnant do not involve themselves in the, those spaces, whether they are cisgender women or whether they are transgender women. And we group ourselves a lot of the time based on experiences within the concept of womanhood and within the concept of manhood. You know, There are women who can get pregnant who have never gotten pregnant and they also form community based on that. And so I think a lot of it has to do if we dial back to, at least in societal constructs, this idea that communities form organically and that we're not taking, you know, kind of like a woman's pregnancy space and putting um, women who can't get pregnant and trans women into that space. Like there is no forcing of like integration because the way we self-select into our communities is fundamentally different and fundamentally distinct and based on experience. Um, kind of going back to experiences based on race, I am adopted and grew up, um, my family is white. And so my Asian American experience is fundamentally different than the average Asian American experience, but I am still undoubtedly Asian American. And to apply that concept expansively, um, we, we all just connect in ways that we're similar and don't connect in ways that are different. And in part, looking at impacts of this kind of lampshades the idea that a lot of the time, even within the sexes, there's not complete and 100% overlap. And many of the times the spaces will curate themselves without there having to be hardline rules and both either inclusionary or exclusionary rules to that respect.
So is that how you see, I'm just curious what your individual perspective is as far as, is that how you see the law shifting is just taking away those hardline definitions and putting in some sort of language about like room for flexibility in a way? I don't know if I necessarily see the law going there. I think in part our discussion has explored how creating those definitions in the first place results in just some amount of issues no matter what, Uh, even if like gender is not a concept that exists, like if we just pretend gender isn't real, we will still have problems with classifications in the law based on sex, like regardless. Like no matter what, like if we kind of look at um, CARA's organization's Equality for All Act, we talk about the non-conformity of sex stereotypes. If gender doesn't exist, sex stereotypes don't exist. And so there is just non-conformity. Like for example, non-conformity with sex stereotypes would include butch lesbians. Are they also women? Yes. So there's a lot of overlap in those types of definitions that are created. And I think, I guess, going back to your question, that where I see the law going in this is that I think it kind of speaks to what you said earlier about like kind of media overblowing this concept. Like transgender people are, are simultaneously everywhere and not a very large portion of the population. How many trans people do you know? I know a lot, but I it's because of like the enclaves, you know, I choose to participate in, you know, it, there is like that kind of, again, self-selection of social groups. And then that naturally results in like, for example, trans women um, participating in women's sports leagues. Those types of situations results kind of almost got resolved on their own when we talked, when um, in the context of the article that uh, I brought up. But I think long term, I see it really evolving slowly. And I think once we address that things are confusing and complicated and focus less on culture war impacts to like folks's just general perceptions of themselves, I think things will um, kind of naturally fall into place. And something that you mentioned there, it's sort of like the you know, looking for your community, the enclaves of safety, so to speak. I think that's one thing that, especially when you consider like rural America, the people that they don't interact with these kind of communities as much is because when, and this is my own experience coming from rural America, if they don't have a community, for example, uh, like I said, growing up, if there was, you know, someone in my community that turned out to be gay or something like a lot of times they moved to the bigger cities because they had a better opportunity of finding people within their community. I think that's the same thing here is that could lead to the issues that we see as far as like Emmett called about the wedge, like that wedge might exist simply because there isn't that exposure that someone needs in order to really be familiar with and interact with somebody that does identify in a specific way. Yeah, I'm really vibing with this um, kind of a self-select idea. Yeah, because I, I definitely feel like that is something that we do see across different ways that we interact in our lives. We often self-select into like what makes the most sense, what's going to be the most safe, what feels the most affirming. I think there is a role in some sex-based categories being applied to particular situations. And maybe for the most part in our lives, self-selection is sufficient for us to be able to operate, for there to be a sense 
of inclusivity, right? You mentioned, yeah, like the homelessness that folks feel when they're not a part of a certain, when they, when they don't feel like, you know, they're being held by community. And that's definitely not something that one, we want to perpetuate because we know like when folks don't feel loved, that's where more violence ensues, more heartbreak ensues, um, you know, violence to others or even violence to yourself. And, and that's not, that's not, I don't think a societal value that we want to uh, perpetuate. And um, kind of dialing it back to where we started off here with kind of these definitions of women and these definitions of man and the, our understanding of sex and gender. The aims of, in large part, um, trans folks is not to be integrated into every possible pre-existing sex divided structure. At the end of the day, it's understanding that gender affirmation is something that is crucially, crucially important to everybody. Uh, it's just that some folks have it an easier time with it than others. And that it, it is really, it's not necessarily about changing and uprooting the entire world as we know it, but at the end of the day, just knowing that you can feel protected by society and that you can feel affirmed and protected by society, by your colleagues, by your family members, by people you know in your life, by people on the street that you walk past. It's not about invasion or, you know, kind of colonization. It's just about wanting, as Olivia mentioned, that community, that support, and to feel heard and seen in the human being that you are authentically. Yeah, and that, that's what always takes me back to patriarchy. Like, and I know we're getting ready to close up here, but I'm not sure still like, what does it mean? And this is, I'm sure controversial, but what does it mean for a trans woman to have gender affirmation, right? I feel like that's where we begin to kind of reinsert old stereotypes of what we believe a woman is like, to be very blunt, we see like the Oscars and the Grammys and several trans women think, oh, like, oh, look at that trans woman. She taught women how to be women. But in those particular scenarios, and right, obviously it's a sensational media, et cetera, but I'm going there. In those particular scenarios, those trans women are wearing really high heels or really tight dresses or things like that. And so I think that is where I get, um, for me, a lot of like pushback and when gender affirmation means that my gender refers to me being a man or a woman when I thought we were trying to blow that up, you know? And so that that's where I still feel some conflict, uh, but I know we have to wrap up. But if anyone has anything they want to say about that, you're definitely invited. <laughs> I think in part that can speak to um, some of the experiences of folks that participate in drag. How frequently is the drag experience a lot, um, especially for drag queens, you know, cisgender gay men engaging in performance of femininity in order to um, more deeply explore either their identity or the identity of a gay man, generally speaking. Of course, I'm not involved in drag culture, but how much of performance of extreme gender um, roles in, in an exaggerated sense and almost in a caricature sense, although that might be pejorative, goes back to how we understand ourselves, how much of performance is really for us. And 
us just generally as people. And so I think looking at trans folks performing and presenting their gender in one way or another can also be tied back in part to identity and exploration. In terms of what womanhood looks like for, for trans folks and what manhood looks like for trans folks, a lot of it dials back to the same types of how we view manhood and womanhood as uh, cisgender Right, folks. and I feel like that's the yeah. danger. That's what I want to like, you know, that's where I want to take the hammer to. Yeah, and I think also, but in terms of like um, feminine, from a feminist perspective, um, women who um, dressed traditionally masculine are, that's fantastic. And women who choose to dress in a traditionally feminine fashion are, it's also fantastic fantastic. Like this is all in terms of presentation, something that we should support and, you know, men presenting in whatever way they choose to present. Like that is, I think, where the divide between sex and gender, especially under patriarchy, really starts to fall apart is that the idea fundamentally of feminism is that women should not have to wear heels and dresses in order to be considered women and womanly, but they also shouldn't be required to wear like work boots, jeans and pants and masculine clothing and also and also be kind of confined to that idea of gender presentation. So I, I'm not sure there's any like clear answers, but I think patriarchy is where a lot of that stuff starts to break down is that it really is just about how you how do you perceive womanhood under under feminism? You know, it's a it's meant to be freeing and not to, you know, you can choose to be traditional and you can choose to be progressive, flamboyant, I, I, whatever you, you performance of your gender is should be up to you to some degree and it's it's funny that Augie just woke up at this moment because um one thing that we ran into with her like I said she's nine months old but what we decide to dress her up in like that has a big impact on how people treat her so if she wears blue any blue at all people will assume she is a boy it doesn't really matter to us because they don't know her but at the same point like it's interesting how that one color like and one of her favorite onesies is a blue one with a dinosaur but it's a boy's onesie like it's separated by boys and girls clothes like it's just it's it's just really interesting and something that I would have never noticed if I didn't have a like I say didn't have a infant I feel like we could probably go on forever but what I hope for our listeners is that this conversation felt meaningful that it felt like it gave no answers, that it felt like it gave a myriad of perspectives, things to think about, things to consider, and more than anything that however you show up in this world, you feel loved. And right, this was a very, well, maybe not theoretical. I'm not gonna say it's theoretical because this, whatever way, these are the lives that we live, right? And the people that we communicate and love. But I hope that we found it useful as a meaningful way to think and discuss the law because it all intersects, right? Like our life is not separate from the law. And so finding ways to merge these together, however messy um, it can be, however imperfect our statements were that you know that this conversation was brought with love and intention and that the podvocate is here for y'all. That's all from us here at the podvocate. Thanks for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. 
Visit our website at thepodvicate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvicate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Josand. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvigate.